Heaven and Hell. Two places that human beings either strive for or try to avoid at any cost. In today's episode of The Writer's Lens, I'll be talking about an old favorite of mine called The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. I'm talking about how we often take heaven very seriously, but forget about its opposite, which is hell. I'm Josh J.C. Felto. this is The Writer's Lens, and this is an analysis of the book The Great Divorce and why hell is never taken seriously. So based upon the intro that I gave there, and uh, sorry for the delay here in episodes on the writer's lens if you've been anxiously awaiting the next one, <laughs> COVID-19 has had a lot of effects on all of us uh, across the world, including myself when it comes to just time management. But anyway, uh, speaking of hell, <laughs> uh, this episode, um, I've been wanting to get back to doing an analysis of a favorite book of mine. Uh, for a while, and The Great Divorce is one that I thoroughly enjoyed years ago, and so I cracked it back open and decided to do an episode on it, looking at the themes within it, because Lewis, who is one of my favorite uh, authors slash theologians of all time, does a wonderful job in a very short span of time talking about uh, the nature of heaven and hell and how people seemingly choose hell over heaven every single day which might seem like a very strange concept. It may sound like something foreign to you, this idea that people would rather choose hell than choose heaven. But Lewis does a great job of this in his book, The Great Divorce. So we're going to kind of dive into this, unpack a bit of the story uh, in this episode. So what is The Great Divorce? What is this book that I'm referencing uh, for this episode? If you're not familiar with it, like I said, it was written by C.S. Lewis. It was actually printed in 1945. So it's an older book. I think we're up on 75 years now, is how old the, the book would be at this point. It's technically a novella, uh, so it's a short story. It's about 100 and I think 118, 120 pages, depending upon what version you pick up. And it really is told through the eyes of a narrator who is trying to leave a place called Greytown. And he has to get on a bus to do that. And uh, the whole thing is sort of this strange, almost out-of-body experience. It's almost very abstract. As much as there's very physical things that are in this world that the narrator is discussing, such as getting on a bus and he sees buildings and there's people uh, moving things about, uh, everything becomes very ethereal at some point. And ghostly-type apparitions start showing up. Silhouettes start becoming very prominent. Shadows appear as though they're alive. And... Uh, the narrator, again, is trying to get on a bus and leave what he calls, quote-unquote, Greytown. And you start to pick up as you go through the story what exactly Greytown represents, what the bus represents, and what all the people are doing on the bus. Uh, because in a spoiler alert moment here, what's really going on is that the narrator is leaving uh, either Earth or Hell and is trying to get to Heaven or Perhaps I shouldn't say trying, he's getting to heaven. He just needs to stay on the bus. So, lots of great imagery, lots of great symbolism, uh, portraying the nature of heaven and hell throughout this entire novella. Which I think really begs us to ask the question of what is heaven and what is hell? Because granted, C.S. Lewis is a great theologian, he's a great writer. Uh, does he have an accurate depiction of what heaven or hell really is, right? I mean, if we were to think about 
the concept of heaven, what are some things that we think of? I'm sure a lot of people in probably the general audience space or the casual uh, person might think, well, I, I picture angels floating around or, you know, I picture the pearly gates, right? Or uh, there's God in a, in a white robe with a white beard and a staff or something. Uh, or maybe there's this this concept of eternal peace. You know, there's a very popular image of, you know, like a white line or, you know, everything is sort of in, in balance and and is as it should be and will always be, those kinds of things. These are some things that we, we tend to associate with the concept of heaven. Now, when we think of hell, you know, what are some things that we think of? You know, immediately there's probably a lot of images that have just jumped into your mind, aside from the ones that I just brought up uh, uh, in relation to heaven. You might think of things like fire. Like fire is a very popular element associated with with hell or, you know, maybe darkness. Maybe uh, there's a lot of darkness in the uh, idea of hell. Horned creatures and demons, you know, black gargoyles, uh, things like that. Or or perhaps there's just this concept of, you know, suffering. You know, like there's there's physical torment or pain that is inflicted upon a person forever and ever and ever with no end in sight. These are some things that we might associate with hell. And I'm sure you, you may have a few others that you may think of. You know, maybe it's uh, spending an eternity, uh, you know, washing dishes or doing lawn, folding laundry. I mean, for me, I think folding laundry would be a, a, a certain layer of hell, perhaps, <laughs> or something. I don't know, but it'd be it'd be, it'd be up there. Uh, but then, it, you know, we have to kind of pull back from that for a moment and think about these generalizations of heaven and hell. And consider for a moment, you know, where do we get these images from? You know, like, why do we create... Or why have we associated those images with these concepts of heaven and hell? You know, white and black uh, imagery, you know, fire and serenity and, you know, rainbows versus darkness, things like that. Why is it that we have associated these kinds of symbols with these particular places? Now, uh, naturally, Lewis, being a Christian, a lot of his imagery in The Great Divorce as much as it is a somewhat fictional account, obviously this would be a rather fictional account of his story, of this person leaving Greytown on a bus to get to heaven. Uh, pretty simplified idea about the ushering to heaven, uh, but also the fact that Lewis is a Christian. Uh, the Bible is is one of the primary places that we could say that a lot of the imagery about hell specifically comes into mind when we think about you know, where do we get a lot of this inspiration? So, you know, there's a lake of fire in the book of Revelation, which is one of the most hotly debated books in the whole Bible. And for good reason, because there's so much imagery, <clears throat> there's just so much symbolism going on in the last book of the Bible, uh, talking about, uh, you know, a, a tribulation, a persecution. Uh, there's uh, sort of this lake of fire that, that shows up about being thrown into the abyss, right? The evil one being thrown down. There's kind of these epic themes and epic uh, uh, pictures that we're getting that are happening. So for one, I mean, especially living in the West, and there's much Judeo-Christian influence in Western philosophy, that's one place that we get a lot of our imagery when it comes to the idea of hell. And piggybacking right off that, uh, it helps when you have popular films uh, out of Hollywood or anywhere else here in the West as well that, that depict hell in various ways uh, with similar concepts, uh, some of them a little more <clears throat> obscure than others. I mean, think about 
movies like uh, you know Ghost with Patrick Swayze from many many years ago and, and Demi Moore about this idea of uh, purgatory where Patrick Swayze is stuck and uh, again if you're not familiar with the film Patrick Swayze dead was murdered he's stuck in purgatory he's trying to find out who killed him and uh, eventually when the villain of the story dies he's sort of dragged off into this dark place by these sort of shadow spirits very creepy very very creepy moment in that film if you've ever seen it or can remember that uh, particular scene but uh, going further from that there's sort of more campy and humorous ideas like Ghostbusters okay like the ghosts that come back to haunt us that uh, you know have to be trapped in the <laughs> have to be trapped in these sort of like shoebox little things uh, so not as serious in that in in that uh, representation but then you have really serious ones you know like there's like movies like Drag Me to Hell uh, movies like Devil uh, you know films like Constantine with Keanu Reeves. Keanu Reeves always great, <laughs> no matter what he's in. He's always fantastic. Uh, Dante's Inferno, perhaps, uh, being another popular work. There's there's all kinds of story and you know fictional you know uh, adaptations that we've seen of hell that have shown up in popular culture. Now heaven is in contrast to some of the depictions we see of hell, treated with something a little bit less frightening and <laughs> a little bit more uh, comforting. Uh, you end up seeing uh, imagery like harps playing, or it's a place where all your wildest dreams come true. Uh, perhaps the biggest theme that you see with heaven in any kind of popular film or historically here in the West is that there's this idea of acceptance, right? Like you've been accepted into the grander fray. You know, there's no condemnation. There's ultimate grace being handed out. You were just brought into the into the group of your greatest passion. You know, like Phil of Dreams, I think, is a pretty good example of this where, uh, you know, Kevin Costner builds the, the baseball field out of his cornfield and all these great players come back to play. Uh, you know, on the on the ball field, even though he's he's basically cut under his own crop and he's potentially putting himself under as a farmer. And several times in the movie, there's a line in there where one of the characters who comes out of the cornfield to play ball turns to Kevin Costner and says, hey, is this heaven? Uh, and Costner just replies rather plainly. He says, no, it's Iowa. It, you know, jokingly, but he's just being serious. You know, it's a very literal question. But in the eyes of the baseball player, it's like, oh my goodness, I've, I've made it to heaven. I get to play ball all the time. And, and so this ends up being a very popular idea is that heaven is, is all about play. It's all about joy. It's all about, I'm just going to do the one thing that I've always enjoyed doing, and maybe that's playing baseball. And so we, we can kind of take this into other avenues of our life. You know, if I really enjoyed playing cards or, or driving my muscle cars or going shopping or all their various other kinds of pleasures that... I could get into that would be a little more maybe R-rated or X-rated for this podcast. So I'll just I'll just leave that to your own imagination. But that's kind of where we start getting our ideas about what heaven looks like, right? Is that it's this acceptable place? It's 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 the land of pleasure. It's the land of ultimate comfort. Where in contrast, hell is is the complete opposite of that, and we see that being reinforced in popular media all the time. So those are some places where we, we, we have been influenced in our ideas of heaven and hell. 
uh, at least specifically here in the West. Now, what I wanted to do in addition to this is I'm talking about taking heaven and hell seriously. Uh, I wanted to give some perspectives from from pretty well-known speakers and thinkers out there as we're talking about this story of the great divorce and ideas of heaven and hell and the story therein uh, from some differing worldviews. So what I wanted to start with was uh, whom I would consider to be an intellectual agnostic. Uh, Jordan Peterson is a guy that has been wildly popular for the past couple years uh, on YouTube and on social media. Uh, He's what I would say is a agnostic. Uh, he's a guy that uh, is very interested in the idea of a higher being or, or thinking mind uh, of something that has created order out of chaos. He says that a lot in many of his lectures. Peterson is not a Christian, uh, but he's not an atheist either. So he's a pretty interesting guy. And uh, one of the quotes that I wanted to bring out from, uh, I believe it's from one of his books, Peterson talks about this idea of heaven and hell. And he says, and I quote, From my perspective, both heaven and hell are real places, and people journey through each occasionally, sometimes even during the same day. But people don't really notice. A conscious person has noticed hell and strives to avoid being there. A malevolent person works assiduously to increase the domain of hell. A good person improves the quality of experience whenever that is possible from self and others, and aims at that consciously. So, this is sort of the viewpoint of someone who, you know, is a bit of a, I would say he's somewhat of a materialist, but he's also an immaterialist because, uh, again, thinking that he's sort of an agnostic and that there's something out there, there's something bigger than all of us, there's something spiritual in nature that exists that we have to try to connect with, but there's also this reality of very physical living, you know, that the the world around us is very obvious. Uh, We can observe it, we can interact with it, our bodies interact with it, our minds interact with it in such a way that we can assess everything around us. And so what Peterson is saying that, look, heaven and hell, as much as you want to abstractly pull from different places and create these vast images, there's actually a real place that you can inhabit in your daily life uh, every single moment of every day. You can either choose heaven or you can choose hell. Are you going to choose the idea of pleasure? Are you going to choose the idea of pain? And these are things that you can try to move forward towards actively in very practical ways. And we'll talk a little bit about this later, about how I think this is a bit of an incomplete idea. But moving on from that, uh, I want to move to the further opposite in in such a way uh, from an atheist humanist thinker, uh, the perspective of a guy named Sam Harris, who you probably or maybe you aren't so familiar with. I I feel like I'm familiar with all these guys because I listen to a lot of their stuff regularly. But Harris is one of the famed four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse. He's a guy that has been involved in numerous debates over the years, very outspoken about his sort of anti-religious stance. And as it turns out, Harris, I think, is actually pretty good friends with Peterson because they've debated with each other before. You know, Peterson often from the point of view of, of being an agnostic and Harris being from the point of view of like, look, there's no God, there's there's no sort of crazy spiritual world where there's a thinking being behind everything. And I think his views have changed a little bit over the years. I could be wrong. But Harris had this idea of a moral landscape, which he presented in a TED Talk about, I think, almost six years ago now at this point, where he tried to create, or I shouldn't say try, he presented, I want to be fair to him, he presented this idea of a framework about how we can derive morals, so good and evil, 
uh, on a, a continuum, on a spectrum of experience, of human experience. And so from uh, that, here's a quote from Sam Harris when talking about the nature of heaven and hell. And he says, it's a framework in which we can talk about the most important questions in scientific terms. Again, this is in reference to his moral landscape idea. Questions that relate to human and animal well-being. For instance, we in the developed world have a different notion about how to live a long and healthy life. That's because we have a science of medicine, which gives us an understanding of the mechanics of disease, processes, and how to address them. So Sam is making this argument that because of how we can analyze and dissect uh, reactions of our physical bodies to the things around us, we can derive good and evil from those experiences and from the reactions and responses of our own, you know, uh, persons. Okay, so from our own personhood. Uh, but he uses this term well-being, which is sort of this optimal idea. Like, what is your optimal well-being, right? It's mental health, it's physical health, it's emotional health. It's all of these things running on all cylinders that allows a person to walk through each day with, I wouldn't say minimum strife, but the ability to cope with strife well, all right? Uh, you know, so there's no physical harm being done to you. There's no, uh, well, there could be physical harm, but you're able to deal with it appropriately. Uh, but there's also the ability to emotionally deal with things and logically deal with things. You know, there's this idea of logos that Peterson that I just talked about, talk, you know, depicts that uh, we're able to logically come to conclusions about bad experiences and good experiences, and we don't have to dwell on them. We don't have to create huge symbols of of you know, uh, you know, pearly gates or lakes of fire in order to explain our experiences, and this is what Sam is is arguing for. And and again, I would I would say that this is a rather incomplete idea. It's it's not really touching on the deeper issues of the human experience or even the human condition. So this is from the sort of atheist slash humanist perspective. Of course, again, there there could be a, a much differing humanist viewpoint out there. So if you're listening and you're going, Josh, uh, you know, Sam's not a true quote-unquote humanist. He's more of an atheist thinker. Okay, I'll, I could grant you that. But still, <clears throat> this idea of the moral landscape, uh, I believe, runs right alongside the ideas of humanism uh, with this concept of human well-being being put forth. So, so we have the agnostic, we have the atheist, uh, perhaps humanist, being brought into the picture. Uh, so what about the Christian apologist? you know, this viewpoint of heaven and hell. Here's a good quote from Ravi Zacharias, who's one of my, again, one of my favorite theologians uh, slash apologists on the idea of heaven and hell. And this is specifically talking about God, who would have been the creator of heaven and also, therefore, in some ways, the allower or creator of hell. So Zacharias says, quote, How can a good God send people to hell? This question assumes that God sends people to hell against their will, but this is not the case. God desires everyone to be saved. And so in other words, everyone to go to heaven and be with him. Those who are not saved do not will to be saved. Jesus had said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. As C.S. Lewis put it, which is another reason why I chose this quote, <clears throat> as C.S. Lewis put it, the door of hell is locked on the inside. All who go there choose to do so. Lewis added, there are only two kinds. In the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. The idea that we choose hell or we choose heaven. And all three of these guys, uh, four, if you look, these are conscious decisions in some way. 
that you can choose heaven or you can... So knowing that these varying worldviews, uh, whether it be the origin of where you think it's coming from or the destination of where you're going, look, there really is like a good uh, experience. There's a good place that you can go to. Hell sort of become these eternal hotspots, right? Like heaven is the eternal hotspot. Again, if there's better quotes out there, then so be it. Uh, but in this idea of hell, across all these different worldviews, you know, no matter how uh, deal with, we have to reconcile in some way. Every human being, every worldview, every single person has to write divorce in somewhat practi practical ways, I would, I would say. And he also presents the idea of heaven and hell in a very uh, symbolic way uh, that we can kind of understand from a very simplified version, which is staying on a bus and just trying to get to heaven, okay, which is what the main character is trying to do. So what happens during the great divorce, now that we're going to kind of unpack what's in the story, now that we have all this foundation of, of uh, this idea of heaven and hell from these varying uh, viewpoints, all that this guy has to do in the story of the great divorce is just stay on the bus, get to the next stop point, don't get off. Okay, but what happens when they're on the bus? And they start getting off the bus because they feel like they're going the wrong way. And this is just fascinating to me because this is one of the things that I, they have to put their hands on something and to them, that's what heaven is. This concept, for instance, in the story, who's an artist, who once he starts getting to the, the he sees that he, he's convinced he just has to draw everything. And yet the angels around him are saying, you don't have to draw anything now that you're here. Okay, you can let go of this passion. You were, when you were on earth, you did great works. You did amazing uh, uh, imagery. You were, you were pulling from the places that uh, heaven had put into your mind so you could share that with people and inspire them and ultimately use your gift to bring people into the reality that there is a heaven. I mean, that's also a really powerful thing about art. Really good art is going to give people a glimpse of heaven. Right, like it, there's something about beautiful art that really speaks to our souls. And yes, art is subjective. And yes, people about good art that that draws us in and inspires us, it makes us want to create who we are. Is uh, we are creators. You know, we are creators ourselves. And so the artist is struggling in this in this part of the great divorce. He's like, what do I do? You know, I have to I have to draw all this. And they're they're consulting with him and saying, look, you don't have to do that anymore. And it's not that you've lost your purpose. It's just that your purpose while you were on earth was to give people this glimpse. You can enjoy this now. That's the point. You can enjoy this. You can put down the paintbrush. You can enjoy everything that you see around you and be in fulfillment of what, that you, what you did was good and now you can enjoy this. But he doesn't want to hear that. He wants to go back and he wants to, to bring the, the, the message again and he wants to, he wants to show this, these images to all these people. He wants to reproduce what he is seeing. And interestingly enough, this is seen as being a very negative thing, right? Uh, this is seen as being a very negative thing in the story, which I happen to agree with. I mean, me as a writer, uh, you know, even like a podcaster, I, I, I'm a creator, you know, I create things. And when I see something that's good, I want to reproduce it. You know, I want to reproduce it in some way that's unique to me, but I want to share it with other people. So how would I deal with that in heaven? If this is, if this, if Lewis is, is spot on, okay, if Lewis is spot on in his analysis of what heaven is like, and that there's ultimate sort of joy and fulfillment of creativity and, and 
imagery, what exactly does that say for the artist, for the person who deeply embedded within themselves feels as though they have to create something so other people can have the glory of that artist? The artist wants to get the glory, which is not what God wants. God wants to get the, be the conduit for heavenly things. Now that you're there, it's, it's kind of a done deal, okay? Which in many ways could have been a, suffer, a suffering for you as well. Passions are things we're willing to suffer for. Well, guess what? You don't have to suffer for that anymore. You can now be things that you saw that you were getting downloaded from heaven on earth. Now you can just enjoy them. But he doesn't want to hear that. The artist does not want to hear that. So really interesting little side story there in The Great Divorce uh, that, that Lewis portrays there with the artist. Uh in that part of part of the story. So he ends up shrinking and he just leaves. Okay, this artist, as much as he's just in everything, he shrinks and he leaves and he goes to what we presume to be hell. Okay, he goes back to hell, which is just this constant suffering of, I have to reproduce, I have to recreate. And he may be recreating horrible things by then, but he thinks they're good. Um, but he never gets to have that true joy and fulfillment. Now, there's another character that the narrator meets at one point who's a cynic. You know, he's uh, he basically thinks that getting to heaven is some kind of a cruel joke, uh, that this can't be possibly real. He even is implored by his own wife, who's there already, saying, no, 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 you know, this is the real thing. You know, you shouldn't be such, uh, you know, a critic of all these things. It's kind of like the person who's critical of everything. You know, everything has got to be wrong. It, nothing's right unless it is wrong. And so he eventually shrinks, physically he shrinks, and then falls out of heaven through these cracks in the ground, and he's gone, right? Like, this is, this is sort of the, the, the method by which Lewis portrays with symbols that this is what happens to people that choose hell as opposed to choosing heaven. They choose hell, and in, and in such a way, that by choosing hell, they become very small versions of themselves, right? Like, they basically begin to lose whatever was the gusto about themselves that would provide some kind of weight to the world. And they, they shrink in stature, they shrink in size, and they become these very miniature versions of themselves. And conversely, there's this woman who shows up in the story who's being kind of paraded around, there's trumpets sounding, there's all these people around her, and it's, it's, it's fun, it's almost like a parade. And the main character turns to sort of his angelic guide and says, who is that? Obviously, that person in life was some kind of queen or or great entertainer, perhaps, or, or just something, someone of grand importance. And the guide turns to the, to the narrator and just says, well, you would not have known it, that this person in life would have been all these things because this was a servant. She may have not fostered any physical sons or daughters, but she was someone who brought up and, and guided and provided guardianship over many, many boys and girls, men and women throughout her life, and so uh, therefore became a mother to all of them in life. Uh, and now she is rewarded for all those things that she had done uh, in bringing them up righteously and, and being a good steward, being a good, uh, uh, you know, sort of motherly character to them. And so uh, it, it gives this contrast again that in heaven... There's, there's really big things waiting for people that humble themselves in this life. That for those that uh, seek after the great virtues of life that you might find in a biblical sense, you know, like the, there's you know, the fruits of spirit from the book, book of Galatians, for instance, the ideas of love, peace, joy, kindness, uh, gentleness, meekness, you know, things like that, that end up being reflections 
of where we want to go in heaven and what we want to experience in heaven. So there's lots of imagery happening here that Lewis, again, is, is putting on display in this, in this idea of the great divorce and how hell is really just a lure back into a place of unending drudgery and dissatisfaction. And that's really all that it is. Now, here's sort of the reality check for everyone who's listening to this. The threat of hell to a believer anyway, to someone such as myself, is a very real thing. To others, it might not be, and I, and I get that. Um, however, regardless of where you fall or where you stand on any of the worldviews, you, you might be someone who stood with one of those worldviews I, I read earlier, not everyone takes hell as seriously as heaven. And I believe this because we are constantly striving towards a personal heaven, negating this notion of hell as we go, because we all, wanna, we all want good things. And I, I believe in a postmodern, sort of post-industrial America, it's a very easy thing to do where you're always fixated on pleasure and good things as opposed to uh, potential sufferings and bad things because maybe you believe that's what you're entitled to or that maybe you believe that's what you've been sold being here in a plentiful, uh, plentiful and well-resourced nation. I mean, our, our culture is really dominated by a live your best life mantra. I mean, is it not? I mean, there's lots of hashtags about that, like be you, be yourself, live your best life, speak your truth, all these things. It's very individualistic. So individuals are elevated while the idea of sort of self-sacrifice uh, or servitude, um, certain ideals that would be more in line with sort of a heavenly posture are suppressed. And like I said, what gets endorsed in sort of the more popular mainstream areas is or are these ideas that actually lead us to hell. You know, like the artist we were talking about earlier who he just had to create and he had to do things on his own and he had to be self-sufficient and he had to sort of portray all of the good things himself. Like he had to be the main guy. Like God couldn't be the main guy creating wonderful things. He had to be the main guy. He thought all of his gifts were coming from himself his ability to create. And so he was plunged back into hell, which was really a place of burden or um, uh, sort of burdensome creation over and over and over again. And this is depicted throughout the entire story, you know, as the narrator is observing people who either get bored being on the bus or they get allured back to some place by sort of a material or earthly quote-unquote pleasure or even a earthly... Uh, place of comfort that was suffering. I mean, the cynic was a good example. The guy who thought heaven was a joke and he didn't want to be there and, you know, all these other things. Uh, this got expressed in, uh, in Lewis's story so well because it speaks to everybody's experience. You know, this idea of wanting to get to heaven, but we want it to be a personal heaven. We want it to fit the notion that we're at the center of it. And that's not what Lewis is saying, you know, that we're... We're not supposed to be the focal point of heaven. We may chase after heaven, and we're part of that chase towards heaven, but we're not the focal point of it, and that ultimately is what leads us to hell. And again, I believe that this is one of the reasons why we don't take hell as seriously as heaven, because in the immediacy of material resource, we have these things available to us. We have that. So hell, in, in many ways, is just a matter of posture. I'm not getting everything I deserve. I must be living in the wrong, or, you know, the thinking of I must be living in the wrong country because things just aren't working out like how I envision them. Heaven becomes whatever I want it to be. Money, relationships, career, you know, large family. Uh, there are many, many idols 
that we would say are there in the pursuit of a personal heaven. But again, and I want to hit this home in this episode, is Lewis turns that logic on, on its head with this story of the great divorce. You know, he argues that hell is a place much like these personal pursuits. The real heaven is a place where joy is magnified, multiplied by the giving of oneself to others and vice versa. Uh, and again, this is one of the ultimate ideals expressed as the narrator examines his coming life to be in heaven. You know, everything in the great divorce, uh, when the narrator is sort of in heaven, everything has great weight. You know, like blades of grass, I think, are depicted as being very sharp and strong, and uh, everything there just has this incredible strength to it, right? Like nothing is flimsy or frail or fragile in some way, and yet it's still beautiful all the same. And this is kind of how we have to think about heaven, is that everything that's there is very weighty. And not weighty in a bad sense, but weighty in that it's, it's, it's got a lot of muster behind it. There's strength behind it. And I think, quite honestly, we don't think of heaven that way at all. Like, generally speaking, we don't think of it that way. I don't think a lot of Christian believers in heaven really think of, of heaven that way. We don't think of it as being very weighted, right? We think of heaven as being very inviting and comfortable like a fluffy pillow, right? Like, you're just going to somehow fly into a hammock somewhere and just rest and relax. And there will be relaxation, I assume. But, uh, again, this is from a biblical worldview, the idea of a, of a new body that is never tired, that is in uh, full communion with God. Uh, these are some concepts, some some uh, theological points. I want to be very careful how I say this <laughs> when I'm talking in this, because I want to be accurate for all my, my Christian friends that are listening, uh, that it'll be a very different kind of bodily experience in heaven. It's it's not going to be sort of the fluffy pillow thing. And, and Lewis is, is bringing that out in this story. He's look, He's saying, look... Heaven is, is a serious business. Joy is a serious business in heaven. Again, another good Lewis quote there. But you also have to understand the weight of it and the greatness of, of glory and what God's glory really is in heaven as opposed to hell, which is a place that people will pick over heaven because they believe that the personal pursuit or the glorification of self is, where, is really where they're going to have their most joy. But in reality, it's not. And the, the fact of the matter is that people willingly choose this. They have the ability to willingly choose this on a daily basis, whether I'm heading more towards heaven or I'm headed more towards hell. Now, this will drive a lot of, I think, Christian people who listen to this might drive them a little nutso because they might say, well, Josh, you can't, you can't actually work your way into heaven and you, know, you can't do that. And that's absolutely true. Okay, you can't work your way into heaven. All right. However, is there not a quote-unquote walk with God that exists, that you are to be on a continuum with, to learn how to become more like him. Okay, that actually requires work. That actually requires us to have an acknowledgement and a recognition of who God is and in his spirit. Otherwise, you get the opposite thing, which is I got saved, I got baptized, I don't have to do anything else. I just follow myself to whatever ends I want to go because I know God's got my back because I, I spoke the words, I said the prayer, I got under the water, I show up at church on Sundays. No, 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 no. None of that is true. None of that is actually scripturally accurate. Okay, none of that is scripturally accurate. Uh, but but um, on that point, on that point between heaven and hell, this imagining of personal glorification versus 
self-sacrifice uh, and servitude and the loving of others. These are all the things that Lewis puts on display through symbolism in The Great Divorce because of the fact that, again, I think Lewis understood from an eternal perspective that every single person is dealing with this idea of heaven and hell all the time. Like, we have eternity on our hearts. Uh, one of my favorite scripture verses is from the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament where um, the author is talking about how God has placed eternity on every man and woman's heart and we cannot fathom it. So we all have this sense of eternity about us, but we can't quite grasp it because our our, our bodies or our minds are somewhat incomplete without the, without the knowledge of God or maybe his good teaching. We all have this sort of wrestling that we have about God and eternity, and we're trying to figure out how to how to deal with it appropriately, how to reconcile it. And it's a choice. You know, do I want to choose heaven? Do I want to choose hell? Do I want to choose God? Do I want to choose myself as a God and pursue the things that are all about me, all the all the giftings that I have, all the passions that I have? These are the things that are right. This is what makes me who I am. Well, a lot of that leads to self-destruction. And many people know this. That's the crazy thing. So many people willingly know that this is going to lead to death or this is going to lead to a bad experience or a negative experience and yet they still choose it. That's the crazy thing. Whether they're atheist, humanist, agnostic, Christian, uh, Muslim, otherwise, they knowingly choose the worst thing in the long term because of some short-term gain or because they just are curious. They want to know what it feels like. And again, like I said in The Great Divorce, Lewis explains this and uses symbolism so well to talk about how people will choose that. They will choose hell over heaven if given an opportunity or if, or if they just don't want to fathom the idea of joy or peace or, or being in God's glory forever and ever. They just they don't want to be part of that. It makes them uncomfortable. Well, that's something, again, me personally, I have to deal with God or you have to deal with God or any of us do because, again, I believe every single person uh, has, to, has to do that at some point. Either acknowledge God or, or turn away from him in much the same way that you see in the story of the great divorce. So wonderful, wonderful book, great deep dive. I went way longer in this episode than I thought I would. I apologize for some of the background noise because, um, you know, it's, it's the quarantine stay at home orders and I got kids around and they're up. Uh, I went a little bit longer this morning than I thought I would and they're up and about. And as much as I try to, uh, get away for a time, they're there, <laughs> they're, they're there. So, uh, it's a it's a little personal heaven, uh, but sometimes it can be difficult to manage that. <laughs> so, <laughs> but anyway, any uh, thanks for tuning in here on this uh, episode of the Writer's Lens. As always, appreciate the listens, appreciate any sharing, uh, liking, subscribing. You know, if you're a first time listener, I know this was a deep dive. Uh, I got plenty more of those. If if that's what you're into, you can go back and check them out. Find me on Podbean or iTunes or wherever else you guys found me. But anyway, if you'd like to reach out to me, I, I sometimes throw this out there to reach out to me via email. If you have any concepts or stories you'd want me to look at for uh, for an episode, you can always reach me at my website, jclfalto.com. That's jclfalto.com. You can find me there and shoot me a note or an email. There should be an option to contact me. So if you're listening and you want to want me to kind of tackle a a story or a favorite film or anything of yours, I, I, I may have read it or watched it at some point. I'll try my best and do a bit of a deep dive on it. So let me know. Anyway, have a good rest of the week. Stay safe and healthy, guys. 
Uh, and we'll talk with you again soon. This is Josh J. Felter for the Writer's Lounge.